And good evening. This is the Tech Travel Geeks podcast recorded on the evening of the 5th of August 2018. I'm your host, Matteo, Chief Mobile Opinionist at Tech Travel Geeks, and joined again by Lukash, our Chief Aperture Officer. Hi, Lukash. Hi there. And, well, congratulations on the launch of the podcast. We should pat ourselves on the back. We had... RSS subscribers, and we've set up the RSS feed, so I think we're good to go. What do you think, Lukash? Yeah. Okay, so so let's start off. We have our first guest on the Tech Travel Geeks podcast. From the other side of the pond and the other side of another continent, we have Miriam Joire joining us. Hello, Miriam. How are you guys? Very well, thanks. It's very nice to have me. It's a lovely morning in San Francisco, so I'm just kind of waking up and drinking my morning coffee. Well, thank you for being our first guest. Ah, thanks for having me. So, uh, Miriam, uh, we've called you on because I know that you travel a lot. I follow you on social media. Uh, I follow the hashtag, sorry, the the handle at TankGirl with no vowels Uh uh, on Instagram, Twitter, and also on Facebook. And I see you travel a lot. So we thought, who better to have as first guest on the Tech Travel Geeks podcast than someone who travels but also knows her tech? Yeah. So tell us about yourself. Where are you from? Um, It's a little complicated, but I I live in the United States today. I am a United States citizen, for better or for worse at this point in time, I might want to add. I also have a Canadian passport because I'm also a Canadian citizen. So I've lived in Canada. And I also have a French passport because I have I have a, I'm a French citizen because I've lived, actually, I was born and raised and grew up in France. So as you can see, complicated. The, the travel thing kind of had to happen after that, right? So, um, yeah, I, I was born and raised in France. I left when I was in, I, right after high school, basically, to move to Canada, where I went and did my university education. In So I was born in the south of France, like uh, near Cannes, Nice, Grasse, where, you know, the perfumeries and the Provence and the and the Monaco and and all that good stuff and the Alps. And then I moved to Toronto, near Toronto, a place called London, Ontario, in Canada to go to university at, at a university called the University of Western Ontario. Um, and then I spent a few years there. And then I moved from there to Vancouver, British Columbia, which is on the west coast of Canada, whereas London and Toronto are in the Great Lakes area on the eastern time zone. So Vancouver is on the Pacific time zone, like San Francisco. And then I lived in Vancouver for a few years where I was a video game developer. And then I got a job in, well, I got a job in Seattle first. So I spent some time there, which is very close to Vancouver. It's like, you know, for Europeans, it'd be the same thing as, uh, you know, neighboring cities. It's not quite as close distance wise as you'd imagine because the American, North American continent is so big, but it's only a two and a half hour drive, which in the US is very short. Um, and there's a border that can slow you down a little bit, but other than that, um, then um, I got a job in San Francisco and I've lived in San Francisco on and off, mostly is my home base basically since 2002. Wow. And then I recently um, decided to return to my Pacific Northwest roots and uh, got myself a place in Portland, Oregon, so that I can escape the bustle and hustle of San Francisco, which has become very much like New York City in some ways since the tech boom. It's very, very crazy here. So, it, you know, I, I like to sometimes decompress because I do so much traveling and it's sometimes hard to do in San Francisco because I'm always wanting to just push forward and 
do things and build the world. And, and that's a good thing. And I've done a lot of that in my life. But sometimes you need to kind of take a break. And so I have a place in, in Portland, Oregon, which is kind of the southern part of northwestern United States. Um, and it's, you know, an hour flight away. It's not in U.S. that's a commute, essentially. There are people who actually live in Las Vegas and commute to San Francisco for work every day uh, for 50 minutes on an airplane. So I don't do that, obviously, with Portland. I drive or I fly, whatever is most convenient, but it is a, day, a day's worth of driving. It's not something you can do uh, in, you know, in an hour or two like the commute was between Vancouver and Seattle. Yeah. Um, so there you go. That's it in a nutshell. Awesome. So, um, just a bit of background for listeners of the tech travel geeks podcast. Um, I've been a big fan of Miriam since around about 2009 as a listener of the Engadget mobile podcast. <laughs> I used to listen to Miriam and Chris, uh, talking about the week of mobile news, which was seemed to be dominated by Blackberry, this newfangled device called an iPhone and Symbian <laughs> devices. And Miriam was really into the, the camera phone features, where it was still a, a toss-up between Ericsson or Sony Ericsson at the time and uh, Nokia on who had the best camera phones. So it was, That's right. It was, it, it was crazy, crazy times. Yes. So, yeah, I, I used to listen to that podcast on my Nokia N73. And oh, wow. Mobile podcast listening on a phone. You were ahead of your time for sure. Yeah, it was it was the crazy days, and what I did was I was I was at university at the time. This is what got me into the industry. I started listening to more podcasts, reading up more, studying a few things. Eventually, I joined Lukash at a tech company here in Edinburgh as a test engineer, and things went on from there. So uh, now we've started Tech Travel Geeks, and it's great to have you on as the first guest. Wonderful. Let me give you some context, if you don't mind, about how I ended up at Engadget. Because yeah, I said earlier that I worked in video games, and I did. I came to San Francisco to work in video games. And uh, I did start blogging about mobile tech in 2006, officially. I, I had a friend, and we used to do coffee <clears throat> just a couple of blocks away from here, up the street. And he used to say to me, you know, we used to rant about phones because we were really both into mobile computers and the best closest thing we had at the time that was coming to, of age was phones, right? PDAs, phones, pocket PCs, um, some tiny, tiny Windows computers. But basically, it was a pivotal time because it was the beginning of the pocket in the computer in your pocket. And, uh, you know, there are some smartphones, like you said, BlackBerry, some Symbian phones, some um, Windows mobile phones. Was it Windows mobile? Was it, what was it called back then? I think it, uh, back then it was Windows Mobile, first That's time right. around. Okay. So, so, um, so all of that. And uh, we would sit down and talk. And, you know, they weren't like into Isaiah as much as I was. But one day they said, you know, we're having coffee. And they said to me, you know, you should blog about this. And I'm like, blog? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, he's like, you should try WordPress. It's free. And I was like, okay. And, uh, he, you know, I said, why would I do that? Like, I don't really have time. I got this video game job, blah, blah, blah. He's like, well, you have a lot of opinions and blogging is a thing right now. It's kind of hot. And it's, he says, you know, do you have to ever write documentation or some sort of, you know, reports and stuff for work? And I'm like, sadly, yes, I do. And he says, well, look, I actually started, he at the time was a relatively up and coming Ruby on Rails developer blogger. So he was a, he was a very accomplished Ruby on Rails developer, but he was also a blogger. 
And he said to me, uh, he was blogging about Ruby. And he said to me, you know, I did it because I wanted to improve my my writing skills. And I did. And now it's a lot easier for me to write that pesky technical stuff that I hate writing because I, I have developed my own voice and blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, maybe I should, maybe that's not a bad idea. So I started uh, Tankroll Mobile, my blog, tankroll.com, which now is just like a kind of semi-abandoned semi website. I mean, I, I have it. I'm. It talks about my consulting business mostly, but I'm trying to kind of revamp it into something else at some point. Um, and I don't feel it is as much of an important thing to have a, a platform like that anymore with, you know, podcasting, with video, with YouTube, with, with social media, but this is pre all of that. This is pre YouTube, pre Twitter. And so, you know, I, I just, I just started and that's somehow I found a voice and the iPhone came out and that helped me. I think that helped all of us even get more of a voice because there's a lot to debate and discuss. And then I went from there to, uh, um, you know, I, I did a lot. So I'm, my background is in electrical engineering. And so even though I'm, I've worked as a software engineer in, in video games, my background is, is, you know, hardware. So I, I started tinkering with ultra books. Like I've always been fascinated by putting a computer in your pocket. That's always been the, the end goal for me. And so now everybody has that. But back then, 10 years ago, you have to put it in context. That was just beginning, right? For the majority of people. And even using a smartphone back then, it was a tough call to replace. And it's still today a tough call to replace, say, a laptop. But now at least you can get a lot done with your smartphone, right? But um, so I I was into that. So I bought a bunch of ultra books because they were so cheap. And I started tinkering with them because I was like, okay, these are built around standardized chipsets. And they're very, very feature uh, limited, right? For cost. So, so these, what? These are these are netbooks rather than ultra books. Sorry, netbooks is exactly what I'm talking about. You're absolutely right. Thanks for correcting me. So <laughs> netbooks, because ultra books came later. Old netbooks and netbooks were like cheap, limited in features, but they had standardized chipsets, chipsets in them. So I'm like, what can I unleash if I crack one of those open? What can I find in there that's unused that we can tap into to add functionality to this computer very cheaply? And this is also around the time where China was pumping out a whole bunch of USB accessories that were really, really cheap like Bluetooth dongles and whatever. So I cracked a bunch of P, um, po uh, netbooks open and just added touchscreens and and uh, USB, you know, Bluetooth functionality and, and 3G, like HSPA modems and um, hard uh, change the hard drives to SSDs and or vice versa, depending on the models, all kinds of crazy stuff. You know, oh, look, I found an eSATA port in there. Let's just uh, make it do something, right? So... I started with uh, the EPCs, and I went to the Acer Aspire series, and I ended my my uh, my uh, piece, you know, my my tinkering career. I would say, well, I didn't end it, but I mean, I I haven't done much since then. But I ended it with the Vio P series. I actually, Ooh, that yeah, was I actually found all kinds of things that you could do with the Vio P that we weren't meant to do, and so it's all still on my blog. If you dig around tankgirl.com. The problem is that a lot of my video content at the time, I was way early and ahead of the curve with live video. I did all my videos as live videos on Quick. Do you remember QIK? Yes. So no, that Nokia acquired them, didn't they? No, Skype did. And then oh. Skype kind of can't like shuttered it down. And I never backed up my videos. I don't know why, for some reason, I thought that these would stay forever. 
I know better, right? Like I'm an, I'm an engineer. I get it. Like it's not, you know, the cloud isn't potentially could go away tomorrow, right? Like, I mean, I doubt it. We're pretty deeply in the fabric of it now. It would take a catastrophic event for Google to disappear, for example. But I think that at the time, I never really thought too much about the, per, like the, the archival aspects of my podcast of my of my, my my platform so i regret today to say that i do not have a backup of these videos of any kind and and so these were great videos they were instru instructional videos on how to take apart these netbooks and how to upgrade them how to trace the hardware the additional components you could you could find so i would i would probe with an oscilloscope and a multimedia and find like oh there's a usb port Let, let's let's tap into that right uh, it's an unused usb port or like, oh, i found you know i said sata ports i found like um, extra pcie interfaces all kinds of things on there because it's a centered intel chipset they didn't turn it off they just didn't connect them so yeah um, and uh, so uh, that 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 put me on the map and gadget picked me up gizmodo picked me up Hackaday at the time was a bigger blog than it is today because part of it was part of the the Engadget Empire. And now it's a separate thing. Uh, Weblog Zinc. Uh, I don't know if you remember all that, but I'm I'm talking like a grandparent now. But uh, the point is um is that it was it was uh, a thing, and that's how Engadget noticed me, and they said, "Hey, would you like to write a column about hacking for us once a month?" And I said, "Yes." And because you know I'm a little older and a little more mature, and I have management experience, and I know how to work in a corporate environment, and because I I think I'm a relatively skilled writer, and I'm also pretty versatile in what I can cover in tech, within a few weeks of starting this column at Engadget, I started doing other things for them. I kind of got kind of pulled in, even though I was still working video games. They were like, "Hey, you're in San Francisco. Can you cover this event?" I'm like, "Okay," um, or you know, "Can you write about?" This news article, we're a little short on staff today. I'll, oh yeah, I'll 200 words, I can squip that together in five seconds. And the next thing you know, the whole team at Engadget was at the time very, the, the senior management, uh, basically the people running the show at Engadget were very unhappy with AOL as a parent uh, company that had acquired them a few years earlier. And they decided to leave. Um, they just one day walked out the door. I mean, it's I'm making it like, sounded a little more extreme than it was, but they managed the transition relatively well, I think, but it was a little abrupt. And so as such, the upper management, the people in charge of, you know, and like the, the editorial direction, I would say, was kind of freaked out with when they're all these senior editor and editor-in-chief and everybody's decided, we're out of here, we're giving you a month or whatever. Um, they started hiring, right? They started trying to find replacements. And so they they came to me and said, "Hey, you know, would you like to join the team full time?" And I was like, uh, "I make I'm a video game developer. I make 150k a year. Like, why would I blog for a living? Remind me again." And they said, "Well, this is AOL. We are looking for people who have management experience, and you do. And so we can hire you as a manager on that and and make the pay scale accordingly." So basically, I I. I'm using example numbers here. Obviously, I, I'm not going to reveal. I, I don't think I'm. I don't know how much I made in video games, but it was close to that. The point is that I was able to take a pay cut, but it wasn't a bad enough pay cut for me to not, ex, you know, not take the chance and try to try to you know to experiment with this new career. So, so I, key, I key question though: Did you enjoy the blogging more than working in software game development? 
Yes and no. It depends on what you're talking about. I, and this is going to bring us to travel. I think this is the important thing. Like in video games, I did travel. Every now and then I went to a, a conference. I did something. and But it was, you know, two, three times a year, right? And a lot of it was in the U.S. It wasn't abroad. Also, my last job in video, one of my last jobs in video games was Sony Computer Entertainment of America, which, as you know, is the people behind the PlayStation, in case nobody knows what I'm talking about. Um, and they, I was a developer support um, engineer, meaning that I would be sent to fight fires with developers, big name developers. We're talking, we're talking people who make rock band, that kind of stuff. In their studios, last minute, when they had a crisis, when they were trying to finish a game, when they had a deadline that was sitting on millions of dollars of you know, potential loss if they couldn't ship on time because they had CDs to print. And back then, it's all about printing media on time, not having a package you can download on time. So it was challenging. And so these people, would fl I would get flown around often to fix these things. And But again, mostly it was North America. Um, and so that was the beginning of my travel. I mean, I've traveled a lot simply because I have family in France, family in Canada, so I fly around these, you know, Europe and back and forth quite a bit, maybe two, three times a year, as it was normally would be my schedule. But I had a, more, I had a bit more U.S. travel to that then with my video game jobs, so especially towards the end of my career. And then I get a job at Engadget, and now I have to go to CS, you know, MWC, IFA, Computex, CBIT, like everything, right? So as a senior person, it was my job to be there to, you know, I was, my job was to manage mobile at Engadget. And so I had, at one point, I think three editors working for me. And, you know, I had to kind of like decide who was going where, who was reviewing what, all that stuff. So the end result is that I did start traveling a lot. And so to answer your question, I like the travel part and the access to technology parts of being a tech journalist a lot. Do I like writing? No, I'm not. I'm a, I think I'm a great writer somehow. I mean, I've developed the skills over the years. I think obviously I had a baseline of being a decent writer because I can do it well. I'm a very slow writer though, and that's always been a problem. I'm comparatively to some tech bloggers I know. Um, I think I can still hold my own. I can pump out short, brief news stories, you know, several a day uh, very quickly in, in, in a dire situation like CS. Not that I like doing it, but I can. So I've learned to adapt, um, but I don't think that writing is what I'm passionate about. What I'm passionate about is what I do now as a tech journalist mostly, which is my podcast. I've always found it really easy to tell people with words what I'm thinking and what I like and what I don't like and what I and describe and explain, as you can tell from this show. And so so that is why I started, you know, I started I I the engagement mobile podcast existed at a time, but it was I don't think it was that exciting. I think that you know, I I like to think that I added something to it, and and that was my one hour a week where I felt like really that and the travel and the cool gadget that would land on my desk on a daily basis was the things that made me go. This is a super cool job. The stress around working for AOL, which was really quite a nightmare, um, and maybe it's changed now because they're owned by uh, Verizon and Oath. Or they're rebranded themselves or whatever. I don't know. It's different now. They're together with Yahoo. Who knows? The point is that, you know, it was stressful to deal with the upper levels. Thankfully, I had a great editor-in-chief, Tim Stevens, who sheltered us from a lot of that uh, very effectively. But but the reality, in case you don't know who Tim is, he's the uh, editor-in-chief of uh, Roadshow on CNET, which is a car 
uh, a car show, a car, yes. sorry, a blog. Uh, so Tim the is car, a big guy. Yeah, the car part of CNET, anything about cars at CNET is what we call the roadshow, and it's his, it's his baby. Um, so, you know, I had great time working there, but there were a lot of challenges. Also, you know, we were understaffed. Uh, I was getting paid certainly very well, I have to say, but I just felt like it was breathe. Like I thought video games was stressful in the sense that, you know, you'd, you'd work a lot and then you'd work even more as you'd get a month or like a few months before shipping. Usually, you know, I worked on big eight AAA titles, so it was two year development cycles. And towards the end of that two years, you know, last six months, you, you barely slept and you worked really hard. And you, that was part of the deal. Um, but this was like that every day. Like it felt like I was finaling a game every day when I worked at Engadget. And, and it takes a certain person to do that and it wears you out. And I was also about 20, 10, 20 years older than most of the, the young 20 year old editors that have way more energy. And um, you know, the advantage is that I don't sleep, I need to, I don't need to sleep as much anymore. So like, as you get older, you can sleep five hours a night and you're fine. So that, that was my edge. You know, I was always awake, uh, but a lot of them are always awake too, because somehow they managed. Anyway, the point is that Engadget was wonderful. I loved being a tech journalist there. I had a great team, despite some challenges of, you know, being understaffed, having to deal with management, all that. And video games. I think was a little more relaxed in retros, you know, in retrospect, but at the time felt pretty intense. And what I love about video games is I was creative, uh, more creative in a different way. I was crafting code and, and I don't craft code anymore. I haven't really crafted code other than for a little bit of experimenting here and there since 2010. And I, I miss that. I miss that a lot. And if I ever wanted to go back in video games right now as a career, I think it'd be very hard because there'd be people asking me, what have you been doing for the last eight years, right? And and I wouldn't, I would be able to explain what I've been doing, but I think that they wouldn't really, it wouldn't be relevant to being a video game developer, I think, too much. Maybe management aspects would be running my own business and, you know, managing the business side of the business would be, but I don't think that, uh, that would end up putting me not in a developer position in video games, which is, you know, so I think my days of getting my hands dirty coding is for money, it's probably over. Getting my hands dirty for coding is not over. That's going to continue happening. Yeah, I was so, about to ask. Yeah, I was about to ask because I've done some coding in my life as well, and I did really enjoy the, the pressing the commit button. And yeah. uh, right now, the only because I don't do uh, coding myself just now at the moment at work, the the similar feeling to pressing commit is uh, upload video. Yeah. Uh, do Do you feel the sim a bit of similarity of uh, between those two? Yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels. I think the time cycle is very different, but the the you know a lot of the the reward and the you know the the general structure is very similar. And I think that's probably why you see actually a lot of tech journalists that came from technical backgrounds. Um, and as, as much as there's a lot of tech journalists who came from uh, other backgrounds, like, of course, journalism, but less so, you see a lot of people who came from, you know, some sort of social science, which I think is also really important because you have to understand people to understand how technology fits in their in their daily lives. And so, you know, today I travel a lot, not just because I'm a tech journalist, uh, because really I'm only a tech journalist part-time. My, my blog, sorry, my podcast <clears throat> mobiletechpodcast.com is my my weekly show and it's my my baby it's my focus it's what keeps me relevant it was it, you know it's what keeps the phones landing on my desk maybe not daily anymore but at least weekly and it's what keeps 
uh, you know, keeps me happy because I, I don't think I feel like I, it's hard because Engadget was such a great platform with the mobile tech podcast for me. I made such a great audience uh, there with that show that, you know, I've had some people that ever, ever since I left Engadget and we'll talk about why and what happened after that. But ever since I left, wanted to me to continue and I have kind of continued. And then one day, like a year ago, a year and a year and a half ago, I finally decided to commit to doing this again. And I've got a lot of people who came back and I got a lot of new people and podcasting is so natural for me that it's easy, but I don't make money at it really. Like I've explained this on my podcast. It's like, I haven't, we have one sponsor audible, com, but that's it. And, you know, ultimately this is more of a hobby than a job. I don't, you know, I don't really make enough money to survive off of it. Uh, I do write some stories for some blogs like pocket. Now geek spin geek spin is Elena. Um, Elena's latest, uh, adventure. She was, uh, work. She was the person behind chip chick, uh, and Elena stone. And yes. she is, we, we've um, been in briefings with Elena and yeah. And, and, and so together. she's based in New York and geek spin is kind of a culture slash meets technology kind of, show you know an intersection of the two so i do phone reviews for them sometimes and i love it it's fun but the reality is that doesn't pay the bills right so for me what pays the bills is my consulting business and that's another reason why i travel a lot so half of my travel is like i just was in chicago this past week because of the moto z3 and 5g mod launch that was you know sponsored by moto because as a small publication i can't really afford the travel so i try to get sponsorships um, I went to Computex that was sponsored by ASUS. Um, I went to um, CES and it was sponsored by Huawei, et cetera, right? So I, I always Qualcomm, you know, flew me to many places over the years. I have to give Qualcomm huge kudos for being a huge sponsor of the mobile tech podcast over the years. Um, but the reality is that this is, this is how I can be um, – you know, kind of a, a hobbyist, as it were, tech journalist. And don't get me wrong, if I can monetize it more, I would. But right now, I don't really have a way to do that without, you know, sinking my entire life into it. And I can't really do that because I'm running a consulting business. So it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, everybody's in a different way. I have a YouTube channel as well. And that YouTube channel has been existing since Tanker on Mobile, since before Engadget. And back, in fact, in, back in the day, I, I used to republish some of my quick videos on there. I just kind of an afterthought. And those are the ones, who, those are the videos that survived. Um, but they, um, you know, that ch my channel was making money when I joined Engadget. At the time, I was, you know, there were no celebrity tech bloggers. And I think I was actually probably making more money than most people on YouTube as a tech person in 2009. But now, in uh, or whatever, 2010, whenever it was. And now it's, you know, I make, I make a bit of money enough to probably buy a coffee a day. Uh, it's not bad, right? But it's not going to pay my bills again. So so it's a passion for me. It's because I want to stay relevant as a journalist because I have a voice. People want to hear it uh, because I want access. And that's why I do it. And I think everybody's on. I'm very clear about this with everyone. Um, if it becomes something, if it grows, if it explodes, if it, you know, great. I, I think there's too much going on right now in tech. Uh, YouTube is well cornered and the folks who are doing YouTube really well are people that I have a lot of respect for, you know, like we're talking about Michael Fisher, Mr. Mobile, you know, Marcus Brownlee, MKBHD, we're talking about, uh, you know, Lewis at uh, Unbox Therapy, you know, Austin Evans, who was on my show a week and a half ago. 
That was uh, a great episode. Oh, thanks. And, you know, people like uh, David Kogan, The Unlocker, etc. I mean, these folks work. This is their job. They work full time at doing this. You have no idea how hard these people work. They work just as much as when I was at Engadget. I have, you know, like people, it's, it's kind of weird because when I was an early blogger in tech, you know, the PR people kind of looked down on us because we weren't the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, we weren't the press. And then they learned because we became big and started making a shit, sorry, ton of money uh, as publications. And then they took us seriously. And then YouTube kind of came, the YouTube world came in and people didn't take them seriously. I did because I knew what they were doing. I knew it was real. And well, the, the, you, you and the YouTubers are by definition influencers. You're trusted people right, who, right. who are really influencing people's consumer choices because you're trusted. And specifically in your case, Miriam, you understand the technology behind things. You simplify right, it right. and explain it so that people understand the benefits, the unique selling uh, propositions of products which is great yeah i think i think you're right and so these guys do the same and you know they're not taken really seriously like i i've had like i was i was on a huawei trip to europe in june where most of the people were influencers and youtubers and podcasters not tech journalists bloggers like in gadget the verge cnet with wired or whatever not press at all like in terms of new york Times, wall street journal etc so very interesting how things are changing. Of course, there's a whole Snapchat, um, you, you know, Instagram stories, in, uh, Facebook stories, whatever they're called on Facebook. I don't know. Kids these days, it's too complicated for me. I'm <laughs> old. I, I Look, I have to admit that I have not made the transition into these mediums primarily because I don't really know how to do it right. I, I know. And I'm also old. I just can't. I can handle square video, but I can't handle portrait video whatsoever. I'm just. <laughs> I, every time I do a Facebook story or an Instagram story, I literally put my phone landscape so that the person watching on the other hand has to put their phone landscape. That's how I deal with it. <laughs> I get I'm told like, off by Luke I'm like, my eyes are like this. Okay. My eyes are not like that. So I don't understand kids today. Like, I just don't get it. It's like, sure, a human is like that. So maybe if you're taking a lot of videos of humans or of smartphones that are vertical, I get it. Anyway, it, I, as I said, I'm just too old for this. Um, but look, YouTube is a great platform. It's actually the only platform you can directly monetize. I know that a lot of folks that I know on Instagram make money through sponsorships, but ultimately, I think YouTube is a better platform. Um, and I also think Twitch is a fantastic platform, even though I'm not on it. Um, and I do think that um, podcasting has had uh, had a spike in the in the mid early 2000s, or like in the first decade of the century of the millennium, um, and then it kind of died down a bit. And I think it's taking off again, which is why another reason why I re rekindle my podcast, whether it's video podcasting or audio only, like I do audio only, whether it's live or not live, I don't do live because again. I travel so much. So let's talk about the travel, if you don't mind, because I think no, we've that's great. About you're, you're running the show now, so go oh, ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. This is good. Well, well, well. Um, so the travel. So, okay. So I said to you guys that I travel a lot for, for, for like the, the blog, for the, for, you know, for, as a journalist, because I get, I try to get invited to all the big shows. So here's my circuit. There's a circuit, first of all. I did that circuit within Gadget. So it's CS, Mobile World Congress, South by Southwest. GDC, which is around the same time, um, then Computex, then, oh, Google I.O. is in there somewhere. Uh, then uh, Microsoft Build is also in there somewhere. 
uh, Computex. Then we've got Summer, which is pretty quiet. Um, and then we've got IFA, which I don't go to because I work at Burning Man. I have a gig where I actually get paid to be at Burning Man, believe it or not. Uh, and it's right now a pretty big gig in the sense of like my responsibilities, which means I'm there for three weeks, which is kind of very disrupting to my life and to my podcast and to other things. And I'll explain how I manage that. Um, then I have, so if I, I miss, and then I have uh, usually the Apple stuff. Um, and then I have, depends on what's going on. There's usually the Nexus launch or the sort of pixel now. Then there is nothing until, sometimes I go to Web Summit, which used to be in Dublin, now is in Lisbon. And then that brings us back to CS. So that's the circuit. So these things are pretty much guaranteed to happen for me. Now, Lisbon slash Web Summit is on and off. Um, there's another uh, show called uh, that has been taking place in, in New Orleans, uh, who's organized the same people who did Web Summit. And I'm completely blanking on the name. It starts with a C. Um, a trade show and it i don't find it very uh, worth my while anymore so i have gone to that one it's in the spring um but collision that's what it's called so you know you know and there's rise in the in in asia which is also organized by st paul's but i have never been to it because uh, again finding a sponsor to go there is expensive so um lisbon i can kind of afford to do it because it's a reason to see my family in france and and you know it's cheap lisbon is super cheap so yeah. uh, barcelona i try to get sponsored cs i try to get sponsored but cs i don't necessarily get sponsored travel it's more lodging that's always the issue so because i can drive to cs from here like i can get jump from san francisco in a car it's an eight hour drive it's totally manageable right it's, it's, it's really really fun in the winter going over lake tahoe or do exactly. you go down to or do you go down to i usually to... go down through bakersfield but uh so i've done the other way too um it's more uncertainty to go through the mountains because yeah. as you know, I've, those... I've done that I, i've driven over lake tahoe in may at the end of may and been in the middle of a snowstorm yeah so you so know you how unpredictable it is from yeah. the Nevada desert to snow to uh the de back to the desert in, in sacramento within the space of hours. Yeah, it's amazing. So so that's, um, that's uh, you know, so all these trips I try to get sponsored. Uh, of course, Google I.O., Microsoft Build, um, Apple event, Pixel event. Most of these are either in the Bay Area or in the Northwest Seattle, Portland area. So because I commute back and forth between Portland and San Francisco a lot, I can accommodate being there when on demand because that's part of my business expenses is my commute between San Francisco and Portland. So that's part of my tax accounting anyway. So I'm not worried if I have to pay for those. But when it comes to, um, and I have places I can crash with, uh, friends I can stay with in, in Seattle. Portland is a day trip to Seattle. It's three hour, three and a half hour drive. So it's not, it's manageable. I could go for a day and do Microsoft build for one day if I wanted to without even spending the night in Seattle. So there are, that's the circuit. And, and then there is my consulting business. So as I work as a consultant, uh, I help small startups that are foreign companies go to market in the US. And I primarily focus on helping them with their public facing um, aspects of their launch. So PR, marketing, social media, crowdfunding. Um, and I don't manage or create any of that stuff for them, but I do kind of advise, coach, uh, iron out the, the bugs as it were, fix, fix the, remove the bumps and remove the red flags, you know, et cetera. I basically make sure that they are ready to be shown to the folks at Engadget, The Verge, CNET, and the NWired, 
and and the YouTubers. So awesome. That, so who better than you to do it? Right. It's a it's a good gig. Um, I love doing it. The problem is it's getting a little dry right now because of the political climate in this country. This whole trade war that's escalating is making these foreign companies be very shy about wanting to come to this country, and it's affecting my business. So. I'm going to use your podcast as a platform. I would like to find a job right now um, to complement my 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 consulting. Uh, and so, if you know, if you listen to this podcast and you know of a PR marketing uh, gig, whether it's consulting gig or a a uh, you know full time part time job, whatever, let me know. I'm I'm exploring so, these options because right now I can't sustain the business. It's uh, it's it's really drying up fast, which is unfortunate. But hey, you know, it might pick up again. Who knows? It's it's a strange strange time in the technology industry, especially with certain companies being banned from or strongly exactly. discouraged yeah. from operating yeah. in other countries. Uh, so, where can people find you apart from Twitter and Instagram at Tank Girl? So, so at Tank Girl on Twitter, Instagram, I think Facebook. If you type that, it'll probably come up as well. TNK if you search GRL. for Miriam Joar on Facebook, you'll definitely right. get Miriam so, there. TNKGRL, uh, like Tank Girl, the comic book without the vowels. That's how you can remember. If you know the Tank Girl, the comic book, or the film, remove the vowels. That's my handle. Uh, pretty much everywhere except on YouTube. So Miriam Joar is another way to find me. Spell out my full name. It's Miriam with a Y. Uh, that's the biggest mistake people make. It's the last name they can figure out usually. You can Google yeah. me. I'm on Wikipedia. Hey, I'm on IMDb I'm, even. Wow, I don't know how that happened. Worst Idiot comes to the worst. If listeners of this podcast want to use the techtravelgeeks.com contact form, we'll pass on your details to Miriam uh, if you're interested. And, in and oh, by the way, you can reach me to me by email. It's tankgirl at gmail.com. Tankgirl spell out without the vowels. It's very easy. Excellent. So the, the point is um, you can find me on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel. It's, it's youtube.com slash Miriam Joar. And it's a compliment to the podcast. To the podcast, uh, if you want to see unboxings, sometimes hands-ons, reviews, that sort of thing that illustrate visually what I'm talking about on the show, which is an audio show, um, that's a good place to go. Um, and then the podcast, as I mentioned earlier, is mobiletechpodcast.com. If you want to find it, the best thing to do is to search for mobile tech podcast and then my handle, Tank Girl, because it's podcast with Tank Girl. Because we, the mobile tech podcast pings so many similar shows, the three words, and searches on various podcasting platforms that I'm usually not at the top of the list. So if you add Tank Girl, I'll be at the top of the list, guaranteed. Um, the platform where you can find us pretty much guaranteed are uh, iTunes, so Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Overcast, Slacker, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. I'm pretty sure all of these work. I discovered that TuneIn, I'm in TuneIn. I never did anything that somehow I'm in there. Uh, when I got my Tesla and I, you know, it has TuneIn built in. So I typed in my podcast search and boom, there I was listening to myself as one does when one drives a Tesla in California because we're all narcissistic assholes. Um, <laughs> I'm not a narcissistic asshole. But I, no, um, I, I hear, hear you, you drive very passionately. Yes, I do. Uh, before, I don't know how much time we have, but before we go into the Tesla, yes. uh, how much time do we have? Do we have time? Um, we all the time in the world for you, right. So let me talk. So about, just, let me just let me, before that. Let's let's talk about what you have in your bag. You mentioned you're yeah, going yeah. to burn. And, burn and I want to tell you about where I, where I go for travel for work. So that's the travel that I pay for as a business. So I go to Asia a lot. Um, so Taiwan, uh, China, usually Shanghai, Beijing, Shenzhen, uh, Hong Kong, and sometimes Korea, Seoul, and then in Europe, it seems to be. 
I, I say Europe, and I, I'm broadening the sense of the term of Europe. I try to be very inclusive. As a as a born and raised European who's a very big believer in the European Union, who's very mad that the British are idiots with Brexit, um, I would like to say that the I, I include Ukraine in Europe. Uh, so for better or for worse, you can shoot me if you want for that. Uh, I think I, I have a lot of clients from the Ukraine. I have a lot of clients. I've had some clients in Israel and France. Uh, strangely, not in the UK and Germany and the, and, the, and the Scandinavian countries. Although, you know, those are pretty strong technologically as well. So anyway, I, mean, I think those countries speak English very well. So they don't need my help to launch. Like they don't need to kind of understand the market. I think they're very savvy about. So... Those are the countries I end up traveling. And it's really random. Sometimes it's combined. Like I go to Computex and I'll stay an extra two weeks before or after to kind of like be with some clients and do some biz dev. Um, but I'm basically, as you know, uh, last year was 2017 was my biggest travel year of my entire career, of my entire life. I spent 185 days not in my homes. Wow. Yes. Wow. Uh, and this, And that's including, you know, road trips because i do a lot of those as well um because I, I can't here's my problem i i can't stay still so if i'm here in san francisco after a week i start getting cabin fever and same with portland portland even more because portland i live i, I don't technically on paper i don't live in the suburbs i live right in the corner of the city but it feels like the suburbs to me i don't know if you've been to these american cities where even old neighborhood feels like all you hear is lawnmowers and dogs <laughs> And there's no cars going by on your street. And you're like, what is this? Like, I'm an urban person, right? So I go kind of mad, even though I love our, our place up there. It's really lovely. It's quiet. It's chill. We have a backyard, which I don't have in San Francisco. But uh, so I, I have cabin fever. So that's my, that's my problem. Thankfully, I have a partner spouse who is wonderful and loves to travel with me. And I would say goes on about half my trips. So we get to travel together and spend time together, which is really wonderful. So uh, what's in my bag? Um, so, so there's a lot of flying. There's a lot of driving uh, because I have a camper van, a Volkswagen camper, which I take on road trips. Like I like to go to South by Southwest. Oh, I didn't mention South by Southwest. I think I did maybe as one of the things I do. Um, I'm a judge there at the South by Southwest Accelerator. So they give me a free ticket every year and I just have to show up. Um, so I just do a road trip. We get on the camper van. We drive different way to get to all the way to Texas and back. It takes like five days to drive out to Texas from California. In wow. case the Europeans can wrap your heads around driving for 12 hours a day for five days, that's what it's like. Um, and but then again, what are the speed limits you're, you're constrained by? I mean, by? you know, I usually drive 70 to 80 miles an hour wherever I am because I'm a European. I can't. I have a heavy foot. I'm terrible. I mean, I'm thankfully have a, I have a... a, a T5 transporter called the Eurovan in the in the in the US, which is basically not a it's the, not the rear engine camper, it's the front engine camper. It has a bit more power and it can sustain these speeds for miles and miles and miles, which I think would be like 110, 120 kilometers an hour, 130 maybe yeah. at most. I mean, I, I I'm very aware of what's around me in terms of um, you know, the the usually the speed limits in, in the US now are on big stretches are at least 65, if not 75 or 80. Like Texas is 85, like to give you an idea. So there are parts that you can really go. Um, the problem is that you have if you you can easily go 10 over the limit usually but you have to be careful 
And you, you know, if you get a ticket, it's, it's just money, right? I mean, if you're in California and you get a ticket or in, in one of the states I live in, then it's points and stuff. And then it becomes more complicated because you don't want to avoid that. I have to say that I get very few speeding tickets. I've probably gotten three or four in my entire life and I'm 49. So that's not a bad one a decade. I am pretty due for another one. Not so on wood. Uh, ju just to be clear, the Tech Travel Geeks podcast does not advocate speeding. We would no. strongly no. advise you don't, not to. Respect, respect uh, legal speed limits. Always drive like Oregon drivers, 10 under the limit, just to be sure. And then yes. create a giant traffic jam and piss everyone off. But um, they, they have the benefit of no sales tax. They're saving money well, on the fuel true. to be able They're to spend money. more as Absolutely. consumers. You're right, you're right. Yeah, in <laughs> one, uh, we have it, it, we, we have a limit of 20 miles per hour in Edinburgh in the city center and most of, of the city. So driving 10 under would be problematic. Well, so here's the thing you have to understand. Portland city speed limit is 20 miles per hour as well. And people still drive 10. I am not kidding you. It is insane how cautious they are. And San Francisco has a global speed limit in the city of 25. And people drive 30, 35 all the time. It's no big deal, right? I mean, if you really go over 35, then an opportunistic officer of the law will potentially pull you over because they're like, <laughs> sucker. But, you know, <laughs> other than that, it's pretty chill. California, generally, you're safe to go with 10 over the limit. I mean, you know, again, if you're visiting from some other country and doing a road trip in the U.S., I would strongly abide by uh, Matteo's advice. I'm from here. I have a passport from here. I understand the states. I know which states I can speed in, which I can't. I really, as a foreigner, be really cautious because they are going to take advantage of you. They're they're crooked. They they're going to make you pay a fine in cash on the spot or take you to jail or something stupid because, and you can't. There's they're not legally supposed to, but you can't. There's no recourse. What are you going to do? You don't know the laws. You don't understand. You don't have any any rights because you're a foreigner. So be aware of that. Um, so that's very travel centric advice. Um, so I have a camper van. I drive that on road trips. Sometimes we like to escape. Like we drove to Southern California recently to San Diego to see some friends for the weekend, like all the way from, from Portland, which is like a two, two and a half day trip. We like that we, because we can work. We both work remotely. We both work online. It's feasible. There's good internet coverage in most places. Uh, out in the middle of nowhere, it's a little harder. But you can find coffee shops with Wi-Fi. You can find your a way to upload your work, whatever you need to do. So that's what I do. And then I have two cars because I'm a car nut. I have a Tesla Model 3 that I just got. And I got a Porsche Boxster S, which is older, 2001. And that's kind of like one is a convertible for the summer. It's, you know, all my cars that other than the Model 3 are stick shift. So I, I like to I like to get involved in my driving. And and uh, I and used to have, just, uh, just I, I changed cars all the time. I had other cars before. Just then. to check, is your, your Porsche Boxster okay after what happened with that drunken person bumping oh, yeah, into it? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I I, I actually, it, it was a big, big dent on the rear right quarter panel, um, which I got removed by paintless dent removal. You know, the, the, the art of, like, if there's no paint damage, you can pull the panel out with a just suction and, Kind of pushing from the inside, uh, and there's specialists that do this. And and I, you know, I paid the I paid for it. It was cheaper than going to a body shop and actually getting it painted and refilled. And also, there's you know, there's no filler. It's actually just back the panel back to normal. So um, and, for for those who don't know, uh, we will link to it in the show oh, description. Yeah. Uh, Miriam's video. video from her 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 fixed camera, uh, which actually saw this person drunken person bump into her car. 
Yeah, I have a Nest, a couple of Nest cameras uh, looking out my my window in San Francisco because I live next door to a bar, and there's a lot of crazy people at night being high or drunk or something. That uh, so I keep an eye out there, and uh, and somebody stumbled uh, out of like they they walked along the wall, so you can't see them on the shot, and they went into our little entrance alcove area for the apartment. And uh, there's a step going down from there. I think they probably lit up a cigarette or something. And and as if went down the step, they missed they missed step, they missed the step, they didn't see it. And so they started tumbling and they walked right into head and elbow first into my Porsche, which was parked right in front of the house. And that's the thing, San Francisco, it's a city. You park on the street. It's like, you know, it's like being in Rome or something. You find a spot and you park and you're you're done for a while. So that's 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 how it works. And um and in Portland, it's a very different. I have a driveway and a garage and like, you know, very, I think Americana, I almost have a white picket fence in front of the house. I mean, it's not really like that, but it's kind of like that. So you, you mentioned you have a driveway uh, and you're looking to have a charger, an electric charger there. Tell us yeah. more about why. Well, so... Uh, I mean, look, the reality is this is that, well, I have a Tesla Model 3, as I said, but I mean, the, the, the thing is, if you, in San Francisco, there's enough public charging, some of it free, like there's two blocks away from a house I can charge for free. Um, if it's available, which, you, you know, you can check on an app, uh, there's all these platforms that are, provide free charging in exchange for watching ads or whatever. Um, we're kind of ahead of the curve because it's the Bay Area. And of course, Tesla has a supercharging network, which is ubiquitous. And with a range of 310 miles, 500 kilometers, I don't have to charge very often if I'm just running errands. San Francisco City is seven by seven miles. It's 10 by 10 kilometers. So even if I drive around town for an hour, I will maybe drive 10, 15 kilometers. So now I can charge that back uh, basically in three hours of plugged into a regular 110 volt US outlet. Wow. Right? I, because... It's very slow charging, but I've only driven 15 miles at this point, so or 10, 10 miles, 15 kilometers, right? So, so it's not people don't realize that it, you have to break the mind pattern of fueling with gas. Once you understand that you can fuel at home or anywhere really, there's an outlet, and once you realize that with enough range in Tesla's case and a large network of very high speed one hour or less chargers and big and big highways and freeways regularly um, for local driving you can recoup that by overnight charging so in in Portland I actually usually just plug into one of my outlets on the side of the house you know that's used for like lawnmowers and whatever it's a standard outlet like would like in Europe, it would be your standard 220 volt plug, um, and here it's 110 volts, just a higher amperage. It's 16 amp, um, and so you plug into that, and I get uh, about four miles of charge per hour of charge, which is very low, right? It's going to take me 15 hours if I have an empty battery, but I never have an empty battery. It never happens. The only time I run low is when I'm on the freeway and I stop from supercharger to supercharger, and I refill in an hour. But I'm always sitting between 100 and 200 miles of range when I'm in the in my in, in both places. And then in San Francisco, I can't plug into the wall because there's a sidewalk in front of my house. There's no outlets. I have to find a public station. And there's many. Some are pay. Some are free. Um, the superchargers are unfortunately outside of the city, uh, in all the cities. They're not, you know, there's a few cities. I think Chicago has a supercharger in a parking garage inside the city. So you have to be in a really big city to get a supercharger inside the city. Um, and Tesla's can charge on anything. They come with adapters so you can charge them yeah. on any normal outlet. I, I was really impressed uh, in Petaluma, the public parking in, uh, I think it was the, next near to, the, next old, the old, old Twitch yeah, studio. Yeah. 
uh, it had electric chargers and they were free for use. You just yeah. had a limit of three hours, I think, because it was on the ground floor. But that right. was that was really an eye opener to see. Yes, they are getting towards this electric vehicle world in California because there is the infrastructure. People are putting money into that charging. But, but I would argue that for most people, even if you don't have a Tesla with a long range, if you're just using your car to commute, like to run errands or go to work and back, if your home and work or one of them has a even a regular plug, you can recoup most of that mileage in one night. Awesome. So I think a lot of people have to wrap their heads around that. I think that's what I'm learning. I'm, I was well aware because I've driven a lot of electric cars as a tech journalist that I wasn't going to have any issues. But what I'm finding right now is that I don't even have to find high-speed charging, level two. like I, I, I always supercharging level three, which is DC, which is faster yet. But I don't even have to go for high speed. I can just go with a normal wall outlet and I recoup most for me because I don't commute anywhere. I just run errands. I can recoup all of my stuff pretty much. Would, you, I use that. would you then say uh, the Tesla Model 3 is the coolest gadget you can get just now? I think it's like the iPhone was in its day. I think it's it's a pivotal piece of technology. We're going to look upon it as a huge change. Um, and I think that it is very certainly very cool. It has a lot of cachet. Um, absolutely. If you have one, I mean, that's part of the reason I got one is because I, I like cool gadgets. I could afford it, etc. But I think that I think that um, you have you can't underestimate how big of a change this is. It's not just an electric car. It is an electric car with great range, the best range of any Tesla, right? And and I think short of maybe the high-end Model X or Model S, which is like the P100 or something. Mm -hmm. But but it's it's incredible range, 310 miles, 500 kilometers. It has a great network of charging, which isn't free on the Model 3, but it's cheap. It's a third of the price of U.S. gasoline. And U.S. gasoline for you guys is half probably, right, the price of yes. Europe. So imagine a sixth of what you pay today for energy costs is what I pay for. If I only use Tesla superchargers, Never mind all the free charging that's available to me. And when I charge at home, are you ready for these prices, my European <laughs> friends? Yes. Nine <laughs> cents per kilowatt hour is oh. what I pay. Nine cents per kilowatt hour. Because the West Coast is covered in solar panels and windmills. Almost all of our energy comes from that, from renewable resources. In fact, there's more and more containers full of lithium-ion batteries being used by utilities to balance out the fact that we have an overproduction during the daytime and an, no production at night. And in windy areas, no production when there's no wind. So that's and that's the future that Tesla envisions as an energy company because Tesla is not a car company. It's an energy company. They own solar gaps. They make so, uh, power walls for... Yep. For home users and for, for businesses, those big containers for utilities. Um, and and I think that's the future. And when the grid, when the grid goes vehicle to grid, when the automation starts happening between my electrical provider in Portland and in San Francisco and my car, my car will be used as a storage unit for the grid. So when I'm traveling for a week and my car is just sitting there plugged in, keeping a trickle charge, they can they can use my power and give me money and then replenish it for free. You you know what I'm oh, saying? Because it's a yeah, container yeah. of battery, right? So now more of us have more the more of us have cars, and the more of us are on this network, the more of us become a part of the machine of power production and power balancing. It's not the production that's the issue now; it's the balancing of that power. Indeed. You have to wrap your head around this electric 
electrification takes a little bit of thinking outside the box. We're so invested in how we think about cars. And I'm the first one to be that way. I love my Porsche. I love the manual stick shift, no nannies, connection to the car. There is something unbeatable about that. The smell of oil, the smell of gas. It is fantastic. I love it. But I think you will love what this brings to the table. And in 10 years, we'll look back and this will be the norm. This will be so normal. We will, and, and you know, and then there's driver automation, assistance and, and self-driving that also kick in. But I think that's going to take a little while longer. But yeah, I could go on about it forever. No, that's great. Um, it's something you still want to know what's in my bag. It, yes, which I, I'm assuming will be in the, in the frunk or the trunk of the Tesla Model 3. Right, right. So um, just, just to... To, to make it clear, in the U, in the EU, we seem to be behind on that, but we're going to have a bit more of a regulated or structured approach to rolling out this sort of infrastructure, and especially in Nordic countries, including Scotland, I'd say, where uh, where there's a lot of natural or uh, renewable energy being created through winds, wave power, hydroelectric, and uh, and solar. So mm. solar in Scotland doesn't really work, does yeah. it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Not too much. Uh, we, this uh, summer, lucky. We were lucky. Yes, we were lucky this summer. But um, it is something that is uh, going to happen. But it, I think that in typical European style, they'll do it as a structured, slightly more standardized rollout. A bit like the mobile telephony uh, yeah. revolution about 20 years ago. And Rather than good. having CDMA and and GSM, we'll just have one standard, and it will be simplified. I but agree. But yes, it, it is coming, be... and it's good to watch what's happening in California, because this there is going be... to affect travel in general, not just cars, but trains, buses. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the the our goal here would be to have uh, standardized infrastructure, and unfortunately, nobody's you know in the U.S. the government is not going to mandate anything especially this government. So especially they the, the hate clean energy, right? The current regime is anti, they don't even believe in climate change. So, I mean, clearly you have climate change. We have, we have no rain here in, in California anymore in San Francisco, which is impossible and unheard of. It's drier than ever. Uh, Portland has record temperatures in the, and the, most of Europe has had record temperatures this summer. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's happening and they don't believe in it. So they're not going to regulate anything related to that. So the private sector is just took over. And, and I think Tesla was the first. And I think Porsche's or VW Group is looking to roll out some uh, a network as well. But here's the wonderful thing about the Tesla. Even though your CDMA versus GSM example is very valid here, if, if, if Tesla is CDMA being the first at least to roll out in the U.S., they are compatible with GSM in the sense that I have adapters in my car today that let me charge on anything, anything that exists today, including standard, you know, um, level two J1772, which is the, the standard used in the US and Japan, which is actually a, 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 a you know, an actual bona fide ISO plug. Um, and uh, etc. And I'm sure that when we get, uh, you know, uh, DC charging adapters in the future for charging on uh, Chatmo and and uh, CSS or whatever CCS, whatever it's called, the the DC standard that you guys are rolling out. Um, in fact, you, uh, Tesla in Europe sells their cars with a different plug in the back than in US. You guys are already uh, they're already adopting whatever the standard is over there. Because regulation, right? Because they have to, and I think that's great. And but it doesn't stop the principle that electrification is not just about the car, 
and the range and the network, but it's about way more than that. It's about the whole energy grid. And, you know, we need to learn to, to wrap our heads around that. And, you know, in the same way as we have an entire network of compatible systems in place for air travel that make it so awesome, right? Yes. I mean, I, I am sorry. I know that air travel can be really difficult for some people, uh, especially people who don't travel often who might be scared of flying or who might have bad experiences because they only fly economy occasionally and they have no status. But I'm sorry that I fly a lot and I'm constantly amazed at the fact that I'm in a metal tube in the sky doing 500 miles an hour and being teleported from continent to continent. It never fails to blow my mind. Yes, I have bad experiences. I also have great experiences because I have status and I get upgraded and all that. But I have bad experiences, but it doesn't stop me from loving to fly. And I think it's a magical thing. We live in a crazy magical time of technology that we can do that. And flying has never been cheaper worldwide. Yes. Um, so if you're listening to this and you're an aspiring travel tech person, fly, get on an airplane. <laughs> Doesn't matter where you go, go somewhere, make it a habit. Okay. And use public transit in at your destination because you don't have a vehicle there. And in many places, if you're going to be in an urban environment, public transit rules. And and if you want to go out in the uncharted lands, like I went to Iceland for a week and, you know, public transit, not so much. So I rented a car and I drove a four by four around the ring road and wow. it was amazing. It was expensive, but you know what? We made a holiday of it. It was great. Um, So I think that, you know, I love trains, by the way, being a French person. Come on. How can I not love trains? We... So, you know, of course, uh, I love trains. We don't have too many trains in the U.S. Trains in the U.S. is sad. Wah, 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 sad trombone with trains. In, but... in Italy, we have TAV, which is t uh, going to be plugging into TGV. Uh, so, it's it, yes, in, in Europe, this approach to high-speed railways is much. In Asia. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, in, in Asia. Asia is just insane. Plus, uh, uh, there, there have been experiments with maglev in, in Asia as well, which yeah. And then sadly... there's Hyperloop which is a bit of a crazy idea, but I think it's going to take off. Once somebody spends the billions of dollars in infrastructure to build one and people see how good it is, it's going to be like, oh, maybe we should do more of that. And then it's just going to be a matter of in infrastructure, cost, you know, value, whatever. That's, we'll funny you, that that's funny you should mention that because Lukesh and I were recently at the Hyperloop One uh, Edinburgh University Group's launch in Edinburgh. Uh -huh. where they were shipping off their prototype to California for testing. So we have a quite a strong commitment here in the UK, both from the government side and uh, other institutions in making a Hyperloop a thing here. The big uh, attraction, especially to Lukash and I here in Edinburgh, is a 45-minute Hyperloop connection from the centre of Edinburgh to the centre of London. Wow. At the moment is a four-hour train journey, Mm -hmm. or uh, a 45 minute to an hour flight but then mm -hmm. you have to go through airport security yeah, then it's four hours anyway yeah. <laughs> right. exactly so yeah. uh, hyperloop is a is a thing and one of the candidates uh, proposals is edinburgh to london so we're quite excited about that and we do think as in we, we do think that it has potential it may not look like the current prototypes but we hope it does roll out soon that would be lovely. Uh, there's been talk for a high-speed train in California between San Francisco and Los Angeles for a long time, which might now turn into a Hyperloop. Who knows? 
uh, the infrastructure is being built in both cities to accommodate the you know line as it were and penetrating the city um the state there's a, a new transit hub being built in downtown san francisco which has um you know a basically a big tunnel under the city going to out, outside to <laughs> nothing right now just in case uh so there's they're thinking about it it's been talked about for a long time i think it's inevitable to happen because right now the biggest problem you have is even though i think u.s airports are pretty efficient generally speaking compared to other places um especially with TSA pre and these other, uh, you know, quick, quick security systems. Um, I'll give you an example. Part of the reason it's not a big deal for me to live in Portland is it's two hours and 20 minutes door to door by plane. And and the flight is an hour and 10 minutes. So it's not that it's, it's because I fly, if you fly the right time, I can, I'm literally 15 minutes away by car from the airport in both places. So that's, that's half an hour. And I can time it so that I literally walk into the airport, go through security, sit in my seat on the plane, right? And then take off, land, get out the door, get on. A, I, I never do check luggage. So ne- get on the door, get out, lift, you know, or Uber and go go to my destination. Lift and Uber are very, very big in U.S. cities because we don't have very good transit systems in most cities. And also we have uh, very poor taxis. Uh, some There are some exceptions. I think New York City has a great taxi uh, infrastructure. Yeah, in, um, in Edinburgh, we have, though, though the locals complain about the public transit, uh, the public transit network, both the one tram we have and <laughs> the, the buses, which are now all being upgraded to hybrid and electric buses, is very good. But taxis, and more specifically Uber recently, complement that. Uh, sometimes, uh, if you want door-to-door, Uber is much more convenient and arguably safer than public transit so um, it's it it is a very convenient addition to public transit always when i travel i always make sure i have uber lyft and if in asia uh grab installed on my on my devices so that i can use it in the middle east there's kareem if you go Uh, to dubai i've only been to abu dhabi once never actually dubai that's one of my destinations i want to check out one day well, um, Lukesh and I were earlier there earlier this year. I was speaking at DroidCon uh, Dubai, uh-huh. and Kareem were one of the sponsors of the, the conference. Uh, nice. So we got to speak to the developers, see how they made the app, what their development practices were. It was very, very interesting, and I, I, I'm always blown away by how complex. To a user, these apps look simple and easy, but the complexity behind them in making all this happen is, is astounding. Oh, for sure, big engineering challenge. There's the logistics of of uh, on-demand uh, car, you know, car services are are incredible, and I think we're learning a lot from that. Complemented with the logistics challenges that have been overcome to a great extent by uh, companies like UPS and FedEx and and DHL, you know, we've learned collectively as a as a species uh, a lot about optimizing this stuff now, and I think. Uh, it's trickling down. You can see it happening in many other areas. I think it's very exciting. It, we've but come, yeah, we've come a long way from the never take a left turn in the U.S. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, uh, you know, I. So basically, I travel mostly. I would say by plane and by car. Uh, a bit of train, a bit of boat. Sometimes, uh, usually, it's ferries for whatever touristic reason. Generally, not really. Uh, I don't think I travel by boat usually for. For you know, to get at a specific destination, um, and I love travel. I think it's fun, and I you know I can't sit still too long, so it's kind of complements my life really nicely. Um, uh, what I travel uh, with 
is a small messenger. Well, I have two messenger bags. One is basically my my uh, living things like clothes and uh, toiletries and anything I need that it will stay in the hotel um, or the Airbnb or the camper van or the whatever I am in at the time. Uh, uh, my friend's couch, like, you know. Um, and then the other bag is kind of my day bag and it has uh, most of my equipment in it. And I carry a 12-inch MacBook as my primary computer. Uh, I carry a uh, camera, which I'm using less and less. It's a Sony NEX C3. It's about 10 years old. Um, it was at the time a pretty high-end uh, APS-C interchangeable lens mirrorless camera. Um, and it's taking, I've got over 100,000 pictures taken on the odometer of that camera. And it's still working just fine. So uh, I bought it to join in Gadget. Um, and, um, it, you know, the only drawback is only shoots 720p video. But honestly, I use my Pixel 2XL mostly for video these days because uh, it does 1080p stabilize. It does even 4K stabilize, which is great. Uh, for my needs, it's good enough. I don't need to change lenses or anything too much. Uh, for photography, I still use my Next because I'm very familiar with the workflow on that. Uh, and I can, you know, for product photography, I'm much faster than using a smartphone, even though I've had some very good results with P20 Pro, the Pixel 2 XL, the, you know, all the modern phones that have good so, cameras. So you mentioned the P20 Pro. We, we talked about this on your on your show, the Mobile Tech Podcast. Uh, are you still using that? Is it still one of your main devices that you yeah, carry with you? It is in my rotation. Uh, I just uh, dropped it temporarily to use the honor 10 i finally got an honor 10 to play with so that's in my pocket replacing the p20 pro i have a, a moto z3 which i just got in uh in uh in chicago this week uh to play with in another pocket i have a one plus six red edition currently i've got all three colors um and i've got a pixel 2 xl although pixel 2 xl has got my main sim in it i'm too lazy to install my apps on my review phones anymore i hmm. kind of install my corn apps on my review phones and have usually a bunch of review sims floating around. I also have a couple of sims on, uh, T-Mobile is my main provider, T-Mobile US, and I have some sims on uh, AT&T as well. Good, um, good tip for, for listeners of the Tech Travel Geeks podcast. If you're visiting the US, T-Mobile USA provides GSM sims. And if you're traveling from Europe, most likely to have 4G and 3G bands that are compatible with your device. Correct. The, have a $30 30-day uh, 30 SIM card with two gigabytes of data, unlimited un and calls and texts locally, which is handy if you ever need to use your device locally and make local phone calls. Um, what else do I have in my, jack in my bag? I have um, a pair of Edemotic Research ER4SR in-ear monitors. These are for traveling on airplanes. They are um, do not do active noise cancelling. They do passive noise cancellation. And I do not like the coloring that active noise cancellation provides to my music. I'm a bit of an audiophile. These are really high-end, really expensive, really nice in-ear monitors. Um, I am thinking of getting custom molds made for them. They are actually compatible with custom molding. So we'll find wow. out. But the point is right now they're, they isolate 30 dBs of, of noise when inserted in your ear and a super flat in frequency response. And they're high, they're pretty high efficiency. So they work on any headphone amp pretty much uh, out of the box. You don't need to have a separate amp. Um, I have a pair of LG Bluetooth headphones that can also be used wired. They're just over the ear. They're foldable and portable. Uh, so they're both Bluetooth and wired. There's more for conference calls and maybe if I'm in a quieter environment, editing podcasts, editing video, um, they're collapsible. So they're small. They do Bluetooth so they work with phones if I don't have an adapter. 
I have all of the adapters, but for some reason I forgot one. Um, and then they work, uh, you know, they, they sound half decent. I would not listen to music with them very much. Uh, the Edemotics are really my go-to. And I have these big ones for when I'm in the studio, basically, uh, DT990 Pros, uh, but they're not in my bag, so they don't count. I have all the uh, all the chargers. I carry um, basically everything in my life is USB-C now, so I travel with two high-power 65-watt um, really small. One is my original Apple one from, from the MacBook 12 inch. And the other one is a company in China that stopped making it, but made it briefly it was the world's smallest 65 watt USB-C adapter. <laughs> it hasn't exploded or caught fire. So I think I'm okay. I'm going to continue using it. It does. It supports quick charge power delivery. Um, and of course, 65 watt up to 12 volts, whatever number, uh, sorry, it's 28 volts, whatever number amps, whatever the maximum is that USB-C can do. Uh, in the PD standard. And so I use those two primarily. Every now and then I'll bring a custom charger if I have like a OnePlus or Huawei because they have much faster charging with their custom chargers. But usually I rely on quick charge comp and PD compatibility for charging. Uh, I have a bunch of cables that go from USB to USB, all the different kinds. I've got adapters for all the different uh, analog USB-C to headphone, digital USB-C to headphone, and uh, of course, lightning to USB-C because I do have an iPhone 10. So I don't usually use the iPhone 10 very much, but you know. So you've just mentioned us a, a, a lot of cables. How do you manage your cables? Because this is just, really... Uh, not very much. I have a pocket with a zipper in my bag that I just throw everything in there and it kind of wrangles itself to death. And <laughs> I pull it out in this spaghetti everywhere and I just managed to make it work. I'm not very organized that way. But then um, but first first thing when you get to a hotel or somewhere, when you get to bed, it's a nice, nice relaxing thing to get to with a jet lag is to untangle all your Correct. Cables, it's like you? a Zen thing. You're kind of like, mm, <laughs> It doesn't actually take that long. Thankfully, yeah. most of the cables I have, um, I, I I'd wrap them around like around my hand usually a little bit, and then they stay kind of in a bundle. Usually, they don't mesh too much on the flight, so it's okay. In the bottom, though, there's kind of like a residue of cables at the bottom of the pocket from cables I haven't used in a long time, and those kind of like take a life of their own. Getting one of those out is more challenging. Um, I do carry a, a charger for my Sony camera because that doesn't charge over USB. Um, I do carry a USB type C hub that does power delivery. So it gives me two USB three ports, one SD card and uh, passes through the USB C charging. And I use that um, when I want to connect peripherals. I, I do also have to use a micro no mini USB cable for my uh, Samsung Sam not Samsung, the Korean company, but Samson S O N the microphone manufacturer, um, Go Mic, which is a tiny portable condenser mic, similar to this one here, but much smaller, uh, very high quality. Um, and I plug it to the hub and then to the MacBook for audio recording. I know I could use a Zoom or a Lav or something, but I'm, I'm old school. I use a phone as a backup, a voice recorder next to it on an airplane mode, so there's no interference. That's how I record my podcast. Audacity, Skype usually, or Hangouts on Air like this. And then um, what else is in my bag? Uh, there's a few other key things. There is, so there's that microphone and its cable, which is critical, the hub. Um, Trying to think, I've got a pair of glasses. I, I I have my reading glasses on right now. These are my normal glasses, so I swap between them. Those are in my bag. Usually, I have a pair of sunglasses in there. I have a big battery pack, which is power. It's USB C, so it's like a ten thousand milliamp so, hour. So a ten thousand milliamp hour power bank. 
power bank that's uh, PD compliant. It doesn't really charge my laptop, but it does charge my phones. Um, and then what else do I have? Uh, I have to look in the back, really. Let me think mentally look in the back. There is, oh, I have, um, I have, uh, yeah, basically it's just adapters and cables. Um, I have a bunch of dedicated, I have a little sub zipper pocket that has the short adapters, like the USB-C to 3.5 millimeter. They're all bundled together in yeah. one little happy place. Like I have a very, you have the Apple USB-C to USB-A female adapter, you know, the one that, yeah. that every now and then if I have to plug something just without the hub, it's very convenient to have that. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's cetera. I have pens, I have my passport. Usually it's on my person when I travel, but when I'm at home, I leave it in there. So do do you carry a sim ejector tool with you? Um, I have a safety pin at all times on my keychain. Awesome. That's my sim ejector tool. Sometimes it stabs things a little bit, but whatever, it works. <laughs> so <laughs> okay, obviously, you, you are Tank Girl. You are the mobile expert. What apps do you use for traveling? So what do you listen to podcasts on? What do you watch video um, on? Pocket casts for audio, because um, I'm mostly an Android user. I do have an iPhone 10, but I'm I don't use it all the time. Um, sometimes it stays at home. Um, so pocket casts, video, I use YouTube and the built-in video player, whatever it is. Um, I don't actually, what does play video on a Pixel? Good question. I think there's just a built-in video player. Oh, so, um, so you, you don't use a, an app like Amazon Prime Video? No, I don't watch videos really. Like I have Netflix on my phone, but I don't really use it that much. That's probably the only... I have Amazon Prime and Netflix, but I don't have the Amazon Prime Video installed. Okay. Uh, do you do you travel with a tablet nowadays, or have you? No, that no, I did for a while, but it's just more... Like I try to be as light as I can, so I'm super efficient about... Um, Minimalize, minimalizing things. Um, every now, every six months or so, I go through and re get rid of anything that I'm not using anymore. Even a, even though it might come in handy, I do have a power bar. I have a three power plug, three socket, very short tail US power bar, and then all the adapters. But they're not a, a, one of those big bulky things with the prongs that come out. They're actually individual adapters for most of the markets that I use, two of each. And the reason for that is because one goes to the power bar and stays in my hotel room. And then the other one comes with me on the go and works with whatever I have. And so I have one for China, Australia. I have one for Europe. Well, a pair for Europe, a pair for China, a pair for the UK. And that's it. Because I don't really go anywhere else that I need anything else. That's pretty pretty. Those are the three that I use. And, and yeah, and so um, what else do I have in the bag? Uh, I said passport you know, business cards. Uh, I do have some spare SD cards and things like that for the camera in case one breaks. I sp any sims that I have for various countries that I visit that are still active live in the bag, um, labeled usually because I have bad eyesight, so I don't really know when I'm it's in the dark, I'm on the plane, we're landing, and it's all, everything is moving. I'm trying to find my sim in there. So I have like big, you know, like HK. I just put it in there. I know it's Hong Kong. CN for China, you know, AT for AT&T, TM for TMO. I think that's US because I think most of my SIMs for Europe are uh, Vodafone. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, it's it's very, you know, it's like all of us are pretty organized. My MacBook lives in a sleeve. It's a neoprene sleeve, um, so it's protected in there. I can can drop. Basically, my rule is I should be able to drop my bag from shoulder height and nothing should break in it. 
That's, that's so a very I make good sure rule. that things are bundled in such a way that that happens. There are other things that I don't need that will shock shock resistant enough. Like my my cases and my glasses is not going to get damaged. They're protected in there. Um, the power pack unlikely to get damaged, but the camera is bundled in a little neoprene case, and the laptop is. And oh, I always have a few phones that I kind of put in there as well, and they they travel in Ziploc bags. So I put them in Ziploc bags so they don't get scratched, um, but they just get tossed in the bag. And good oh, luck, what happens to them? I've never broken a phone in my bag, even dropping my bag. So. That's really good. Do you have any problems going security with all that tech in one? Most bar? of the time, I don't. Every now and then, uh, depends on the country. Sometimes when they search, like you know, sometimes it does go off. Their systems goes off because there's a lot in there. The Europeans don't like the cable nest very much. I've learned that. So <laughs> what I found is that the the Asia is fine, US is fine, but the European, especially Switzerland, does not like the cable nest. So what I generally do is I remove everything else, which is like think about it, it's not that much. The camera, the laptop, the phones and the power pack, and maybe I leave the headphones in there. And I just leave the nest in there. And then the x-ray machine actually gives them a, a view of the nest, which satisfies them. And they don't bug me about it. Sometimes I'll open it and swipe, you know, do the, the explosive swipe thing. But I've never really had any issues. Switzerland okay. has been a little annoying at times, asking me too many questions. But they haven't recently. The one time they were really, I came back from with Engadget, I came back from uh, Mobile Congress to Zurich, and I had I, I had a big Nikon with me, like a big you know telescope, Nikon like seventy two twenty lens on a D eight hundred E, and they were like, "What is all this?" And I'm like, "I'm a tech journalist. Leave me alone. I'm just coming home. Okay, <laughs> I just want to go through security. Leave me alone. Be nice." And I spoke German and French with them, just that way they would just leave me alone. They, it worked. They were like, "Oh, you're one of us. Okay, go." Uh, <laughs> You know the Swiss, they're just like, they're weird. Um, but we love them. So anyway, um, I don't, this is my normal gear bag. And I was in Engadget, had more stuff. Uh, I used to travel with a tablet. I can't remember what it was. It was some sort of Android tablet, maybe an NVIDIA Shield for a while or whatever. Whatever the tablet they made for a while called Shield was. Uh, I had iPads in there. I've had, I mean, whatever. But I've always had the smallest Mac you could buy. Back in the day, it was 12-inch Mac uh, PowerBook G4 for a long time. Oh, wow. I had, a Mac, I had the original MacBook Air, then I had a MacBook Air 11, then I went so, to 12-inch MacBook So wait a minute, you had the, the Manila envelope one? I did, I did. So I did. did you... I've been living with one USB port for so long that it's really not an issue anymore. Like, <laughs> so did, did you appreciate the EPC Manila envelope adverts not long after the, <laughs> yes, the Apple I one? Did. I did, it was funny. <laughs> Very um, good. Anyway, so that's, I think, in a nutshell, what's in the bag. There is, you know, I keep, be basic stuff that I do have a piece of technology that I don't generally keep in my tr work bag because it travels with my clothes and my torches in the other bag, which is a Bluetooth speaker. It's a tiny little Le TV from the days when Le Eco was called Le TV. Yes. Got it for free. It's small. It sounds great. Um, it has no controls over it, so it's very simple. It's just passive, no microphone, like just a speaker. And I put it up in my hotel room usually and leave it there for the whole time I'm there. And then usually on a charge, I do one trip on a charge with that thing. I never charge it uh, until I get home. Um, that's there, it. There are two things that I have uh, that I'm wondering if you played with uh, in my that I keep in my bag. Uh, one of them is a drone. Which which I uh, which ah, I use, yeah. uh, and the other one is a Nintendo Switch. Since you've been a uh, game <laughs> developer, have you used any, any of those? And do you, do you, uh, have you played with them? 
Um, I've used the Switch. I think it's a fantastic platform. I don't have one. Um, I don't spend money on video game platforms anymore. I, I love games, but I don't play them enough to really justify the cost. And I'm sure I could get a review in it if I really wanted to. Drones, I'm very excited about. I would love to get like the smallest Mavic from DJI or whatever it's called, the tiny little one. It's not Air. Mavic. Air. Mavic Air, Mavic yeah. Air. I've got this one. Mm-hmm. I'd like to it's get amazing. one. I'd like to experiment, um, but I haven't done, I haven't taken the plunge yet. Um, I find that most of my photography these days, other than actual product photography stills that I use my old camera because of the workflow that I'm used to. I pretty much do everything with phones. I always have four phones on my person usually because I have four pockets on all my pants and I have at least two or three more in the in the bag. So I swap phones around a lot and I live on my phones a lot. Like I, you know, when I'm flying, I usually take the opportunity to to, to sleep or to, and I can sleep on planes magically. Um, not very well, but I can. Um, or to um, catch up on entertainment. So I watch a lot of the movies on the in-flight entertainment system if I'm not having to sleep. But most of the time I have something to do. So I'll pull out the laptop and work on offline, you know, like I use Google Chrome uh, offline, uh, Google Docs a lot and stuff like that. Or I'll fire up good old text edit or Word or something to uh, type something offline and work on, on stuff offline. Uh, editing audio and video offline is awesome. So I do a lot of that while I fly. So honestly, I mean, for me, the entertainment when I travel comes mostly from taking photos. I I, I just like f- try to look for things to take photos off and take those shots. Like you see a lot of photos on my Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. They are really highly curated. Uh, you see one-tenth to one-hundredth of what I take. There's so many photos it's ridiculous. I'm so picky about what I post. So So what's your photo service of choice online? Google Photos. Good yeah. to hear. Yeah. That unlimited I, storage does Yeah. Happen. I so I use Google Photos for storage. I have a Flickr account that has a lot of my old photos on it that I should probably transfer to Google Photos. I have a NAS here in San Francisco that I can remotely access from anywhere that has an even bigger collection of all my backups. Uh, of your before Google Photos was my main platform. And I have, uh, I use my, my editors of choice are the photo Google Photos editor on my phone and Snapseed. Um, I used to use v- VSCO Cam, but not, I haven't used it recently. Uh, I used to use uh, Photoshop, whatever it was, Elements, whatever, the cheap, the baby version of Photoshop. I can't remember what it's called uh, for mobile, but I've, now they want you to log into their system. And I'm like, no, no, I don't want to subscribe to your thing. I mean, I use an old version of Photoshop that doesn't connect to the internet to to edit on my Mac. It's like CS5 or something. You know? I have a license for it. So they haven't yanked it from me. So uh, I'm good. Uh, and uh, But I, I, I don't use Lightroom or anything. Like I'm very... Uh, my editing needs, I try, my rule, and this is something I learned from being a, at Engadget when I had to take photo product photography that had to be right the first time, is that I believe that I, the developing part of my photos is minimal. Like I, I need to be able to do it with the simplest tools, which is why I love Google Photos so much. Because for me, it's really about white balance uh, you know, and and exposure and if maybe color color temperature and tweaking and a few things like that. I very I sometimes crop and rotate, but it's very rare. I tend to nail the white balance ahead of time on the device, on the camera, and nail the crop and the angle from the get go. That's my rule. 
uh, com composition and and exposure and white balance get that as close as I can so that the tweaking is minimal. Like I see people doing these crazy workflows in Lightroom where they spend hours and I'm like, I I, I, I admire that, I respect that, but I don't have time for that. Like, yeah, it's gotta be raw as much as I can, not raw the format, but like the, the immediate, you know? So um, if you follow uh, Miriam on Instagram or Twitter, and I strongly suggest you do if you don't, uh, she's also very good at uh, hashtagging her images and making sure she includes what she has taken the pictures of. Yeah. Uh, do you make that a rule to yourself just to avoid yeah, questions? I mean, follow -up I questions? think, you know, the problem is that uh, Twitter and Facebook don't keep the, the metadata, right? They don't, they, they throw the exif out. Uh, Google keeps the exif, uh, Google, uh, Google Plus keeps the exif usually, which is great. But uh, I find that it's, you know, I don't think I need to get into that much. There are some photos when I specifically am so blown away by what I've managed to do with a camera phone where I'll put the ISO in the hashtag. Like I'll put the info because I'm like, this is incredible. Look at this photo. Look at what the parameters are where on that. But I usually just at least specify in a hashtag what phone I took it with just so people have an idea. You know? Yeah. That, no, that, I don't that's generally great. specify a hashtag when it's an actual camera. Like, a, you know, I have a bunch of other cameras I have a that I sometimes travel with. I have a... I replaced the NEX, the Sony that I have with a uh, Fujifilm X30 is another one of my favorite. That one is, if I go on a non-business trip where I know I don't have to take product, product product photography, but I want a really, really involved manual camera with all the manual dials and settings on it that I can do everything by hand, my Fujifilm X30 is the one. It doesn't have, it's a smaller sensor than the APS-C, but it's a really high quality sensor in image processing and it has a really fast lens. It's a zoom lens, only three times optical. It's fixed. It's not removable, but it's um, it's it's a delight because you have a you basically have a control at your fingertips for everything, like shutter speed, aperture, uh, focus can be manual if you want, and of course you can do uh, you can do exposure all without taking your face from the viewfinder it's a it's a it's an oled viewfinder it's really good Probably. so i love that little camera it was a gift from my spouse to me and uh i use it for when i travel that's my travel camera for Very like good. personal entertainment trips not business trips yeah excellent so uh, you'll be at burning man this year so uh, if anyone's at burning man uh <laughs> yeah, that tank girl. Swing by the swing by the coffee shop in the center camp and ask for me. Uh, don't ask for me by my name, Miriam, because nobody really knows me by there. My player name is Max M A X. So just go ask for Max or Maxi -E, uh, M A X I E. People know me as that, and I may or may not be there depending on what my work hours are. And people will, if I'm there, they'll probably find me, and, and you can come say hi and get a free coffee or something. I manage the coffee shop while I work there, so. Awesome. Yeah. And will you be in San Francisco at the end of September? Uh, I don't know. I think I will be in the Ukraine or China or both. I think I have oh. a I have a I have a round the world trip coming up, my second one, where I start one end and go forward in time. And now I'm already ahead of time by a day or two from having done it before than everyone else. I live in the future. And so this is going to further my living in the future by me going from west from San Francisco and not going east again after that. So I'm going, I think, from SFO to, to Shenzhen, well, San Francisco to Hong Kong, to Shenzhen, to Hong Kong, to 
Istanbul or Kiev or I don't know if there's a direct flight to Kiev from Hong Kong. I don't think so. So it's probably Istanbul or Frankfurt or some European city to Kiev to back to the wherever European city to set to SFO. Wow. So that's the plan. Oh, um, very I, haven't, good. I haven't like ticketed that yet, so stay tuned. For who is your airline or airline alliance of choice? I have two, which is really annoying because for the inside the U.S., I'm I have a different one than for, for travel okay. abroad, and so it's hard to maintain two stati statuses. Stati stati oh, statuses. Technically stati, but boot statuses is. And so I'm about to try to unify that. Um, I am on. Uh, I was a Virgin America customer in the U.S., which uh, it was an amazing airline, the best U.S. airline, especially if you flew from big city to big city like I did. Uh, and it was acquired by Alaska Airlines, which is not a bad airline, but it certainly has downgraded the experience significantly for me. Um, and then I am a United Airlines uh, um, Star Alliance uh, member because I don't fly United. I hate them with a passion. I think they're the one of the worst airlines in the world. However, um, they're be they're getting better. Their Polaris business class service is pretty decent. And they are partners with phenomenal airlines like Lufthansa, Eva Air, uh, Turkish, and a few others that I love to fly. So I get most of my status on United by flying uh, partners <laughs> internationally <laughs> a lot. And um, there you go. Very good. I'm thinking, I mean, either to unify this too is difficult. I'd have to suffer flying United between Portland and San Francisco a lot, which I do not want to do. But I'm thinking maybe Delta or American. Um, and then, you know, that would mean a lot of, you know, real new, new, new partner airlines and stuff. So I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. In, obviously, uh, in the US, it's much easier to, to change loyalty. They, they, they do offer yeah, buyouts. They do offer so buyout. they'll give you the, the equivalent art in terms of miles and status as what you have in one airline to, to gain you as a customer on another. Exactly. Uh, though it, it does become quite complicated. Yes. yes and does. when you fly to France, is it still Lufthansa? Do you fly via Frankfurt? Um, Lufthansa is a lot of what I fly uh, because I, uh, you know, it's just great, great way to enter Europe, right? Uh, Turkish is pretty good too. Um, and yeah, I would say Lufthansa or KLM is generally my go-tos for uh, partners. Um, KLM is not partner on Starlines though, is there? No, it's a SkyTeam Delta. So I think they're, they're, they're actually with Alaska. That's why I fly. Oh, okay. That's, that's yeah. good. So I've, uh, there's some limited uh, foreign partnership that i have with um with flying alaska that that are perks like i think singapore or no cathay pacific one of those two is with alaska as well which is super very awesome. handy like they're great mm. airlines but it's, i need to you know if i was in europe i think i'd fly much more through dubai and abu dhabi like kind of like and i'll probably be more on emirates and qatar and and Etihad in some way or another. So that's an area that I feel I'm missing out on because I hear those are the best airlines. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm a bit of an airline snob. When you fly as much as I do, and you do too, so you know. It's like, you, you know, United, like American, and I don't mean American Airlines, the company. American Airlines are, sh are shit. I mean, they're so bad, okay? Like, it is such a nightmare to fly them. So I feel like, even European airlines pale in comparison to Asian airlines, in my opinion. I mean, 
Yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the newer airlines where there's a lot more competition in terms of service uh, are showing up. It's, it's an interesting environment, which we, we are looking to cover a bit more on Tech Travel Geeks, because how you manage your status through apps and services, how new, new boarding pass technologies will be applied is an area which we're going to look into covering a bit more. Yeah, uh, I think it's good. I so think it'll we be good. Well, Miriam, uh, we've mentioned your Twitter handle at Tank yes. Girl with no no vowels. Your Instagram handle at Tank Girl with no vowels. Uh -huh. If people are interested in getting in touch with you or in interested in hiring your consultancy <laughs> services, yes. uh, Tank Girl at Gmail. So Tank Girl without the vowels. Yeah, without the vowels. Uh, That's great. Thank you very much for being on and this podcast. Please subscribe to Mobile Tech Podcast as well. Uh, mobiletechpodcast.com and my YouTube channel and like the videos if you do. Yes, and also do sign up to Audible if you haven't using Miriam's Mobile Tech Podcast. It's uh, uh, if if I can say the on on the air if you yeah, let me. Go ahead. We're it's, not monetized. Uh, actually, it's uh, it's audibletrial.com slash mobiletech. audibletrial.com slash mobiletech. Please do go and sign up to uh, Audible from there if you haven't already signed up. Sadly, I've I'm an Audible subscriber of you ten years there. now. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thank you very much, Miriam, for being on the mobile on the not the mobile tech to podcast. That's your one. <laughs> thank you for being on the tech Travel Geeks podcast. And uh, Lukash, thank you for for getting the conversation going in Tesla. Yeah. Uh, that's all from the Tech Travel Geeks. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on YouTube, on Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts. We will be available through more syndication services soon. And thanks for listening. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming, Thank Liam. Thanks, Lukash. See you all soon. Bye-bye.